this time of year, uh, last week having Labor Day, it's, it's a time of year where it seems like the whole world resets. We had, today, we have our back to school mass. We've got a bunch of young people here in their school uniforms, all excited because tomorrow they get to wake up and go to school, right? Uh, right now, it, but it's a, it's a time of year where it seems like the whole world resets. Where like, if I'm a student, I get to go to a new school year. As a parent, you get to send them to a new school year, right? Like it's just, it seems like the world's back to how it should be, including football, right? Like, I don't know about you, but last night I was pretty excited watching LSU pull off that big win. Like it was really exciting. But it, it's football season again. And every time football season kicks off, the one thing that seems like we start focusing on from the beginning, from, the, from go, is rivalries, right? Like if you, if you were at the Central game this weekend, uh, that, that marathon of a game that was, it felt like it lasted like 12 hours and a million degree heat, you know, like it was like playing football on the sun. It was rough. Um, it, it was, it was a game, but like we know in a couple of weeks, the bragging rights are around when we play that team from down to buy it. All right? If you, were, if you go to Edie White at Vanderbilt, you know you already had your thing. And if you're an Edie White student, congrats. If you're a Vanderbilt student, I'm sorry. I'll hear your confession later. It's okay, right? Like, it's, it's fine. But it's, this, is how, this is how football season kind of says something about rivalries. In fact, last night, after the LSU game, because, uh, you know, Father JD is a little bit excited, a little bit fired up, couldn't sleep for about two and a half hours, it's okay. Um, I, I was watching ESPN. What, did, what are they already talking about? When we played that team in November, that's red, that we're not going to say their name, but they named after a state that's between Mississippi and Georgia, Right? And they make us feel good about ourselves because they last and we second to last when it comes to things like obesity. But we got, we got not, we're not going to make those things. Like. But there's a rivalry and it means something. Like it brings about an emotional reaction. We get really, really fired up when we start thinking about that game in November, right? With that coach that we all say we hate, but we really wish would come back. But we all say we hate him because we have to convince ourselves that we hate him. Um, but this is just how, like, it's, it's something that's emotional. Like, it gives us a reaction. A couple of weeks ago, another rivalry kind of flared up that I never thought I would ever say from a pulpit. A chicken sandwich war. <laughs> I mean, people, families were falling apart because we had Chick-fil-A versus Popeyes. Man, like, I don't know what's going on. People were all fired up. Is it, is it the Chick-fil-A sandwich, which no one gets the pickles on? I don't get it. And then like, or is it the Popeye sandwich that you need to get the sauce? Apparently that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the coup de gras. Like if you don't get the sauce, you're missing out. But like, it's the chicken sandwich war. I, I, I say it this way, it, this was just another opportunity for a New Orleans franchise to beat up on an Atlanta franchise and we'll just leave it at that, right? Like, so, but the thing is, is that we have in our culture, we have this sense of rivalry. We love putting, pitting two, two sides against each other. And now there might be kind of ridiculous spots where we do that, like a chicken sandwich war or, we, or with, you know, with a football game or something like that. But that's something that our culture is kind of addicted to. We're kind of addicted as a culture to outrage. 
And if you don't believe me, watch the news. Because it's always trying to pit one side against another, always trying to be divisive, like always trying to cause division between one side and another. Which, which box do you fit in? Which place do you fit in? Because our culture, I think, is a little bit addicted to outrage. When we hear something that's kind of out there, so kind of outlandish, something that's a little, bit, a little bit off, we all of a sudden want to jump and attack. Well, this is something I think, though, that's not just our culture today, but this is something that's in human nature ever since the fall. And today in our gospel, this is what Jesus is tapping into. You see, today in our gospel, Jesus is saying some pretty hard sayings, some pretty rough things. He says the word hate a lot. Now, if we, don't, if we listen to that as somebody 2,000 years after Jesus, we might, miss, we might miss what he's talking about. You know, in the Old Testament, there was times that they said someone was loved and someone was hated. What they were showing was a preference. So Leah and Rachel in the Old Testament, Leah was, Rachel was loved and Leah was hated. But it's because Rachel was lifted above, was the preferred of the two. Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, Jacob was loved, Esau was hated. It's not that Esau was bad or evil or thrown aside, but that Esau was second in preference to Jacob. So today when we listen to the gospel, we can listen to it like, a, like someone 2,000 years ago with that background and understand that Jesus is not saying we need to cut off or hate or cast someone off as evil, but that he needs to be preferred. Now I think one of the things with Jesus, a lot of times we like to just look at his words and we miss sometimes the context in which he talks, the context in which he preaches and he teaches. So today, if we look at today's scripture, if we look at today's gospel, Jesus is given, they, they, they lay out some very important stuff about the context in which he is. Jesus is on his way right now in the gospel to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem so that he can live out his Paschal mystery, so that he can have Holy Thursday, the first Good Friday, die, be resurrected on Easter Sunday. Like that's where he's pointing to. That's where he's going. And what does the scripture say? That there's a large crowd that's following him. There's a large crowd that's right there, right behind him the whole way. So Jesus, looking at this large crowd, offers this teaching. Now, I think whenever he does a large crowd like that, it's kind of, I'm, I'm sure there was a mix of people that were there. Some probably did look at Jesus and say, that's the Messiah. That's the guy, that's the guy that's been promised. And wherever he goes, I'm going to follow. No doubt, that was some people. But in a large crowd, I got a feeling there's probably some that said, man, there's a lot of people following this dude. And he's been saying some stuff to the religious elite, to the political figures of the day. Like, he's saying some stuff that's kind of turning society on its head. I just want to see what he's going to do next. So I'm going to follow him. There's some people, I'm sure in this large crowd, that saw and heard that this guy's a miracle worker. He's given sight to the blind. He's made people that were crippled walk. He's let deaf people hear. He's loosened the tongue of the mute. Like, this guy is a miracle worker. Maybe he can work a miracle in my life. So I got a feeling this large crowd has had a lot of people in it. 
And when Jesus turns around and sees this large crowd following him, this large crowd with him, he gives this teaching. And it is challenging. And it is hard. But the teaching means something in its context. You see, Jesus looks at this large crowd. And he's got three teachings that he says at the end of every one of them. You can tell which one's which. Because he says at the end of it, you cannot be my disciple. The The first two that he says... One, all of your possessions. If you don't renounce all of your possessions, then you cannot be my disciple. The first, another one he says, if you do not hate your mother and your father, your wife and your, and your children, if you, not, if you do not hate your brother and your sister or your very own life compared to me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is pitting this kind of me against my possessions and against my family. But what he's really saying is, is they're not supposed to have the top spot in your life. Like possessions, I think we get that. I think we recognize that things of this world will not fulfill us. Ultimately, the more stuff we have, the more power we have, the more honor we have, that's not going to fulfill. It's not going to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. I think at the same time, Jesus is saying, all of these relationships in your life, they're good and they're holy. That's okay. But they're not supposed to be the main relationship in your life. They're not eternal relationships in your life. The only relationship that's going to never exhaust itself is your relationship with God. And he's saying, fall in love with me. You see, every one of us, ever since the fall, Whenever we were created as men and women, back, in e- back with Adam and Eve, we were made in perfect communion with God. And at the center of our life was the presence of God in our life. There was a sanctifying grace. There's a spirit of God that sat in our hearts. And everything else was designed to circulate around that, was designed to, to revolve around me and my relationship with God. And everything else was meant to be around that. When we felt when original sin happened, what happens? We lost. We lost that presence of God at the core of our being. That's what original sin does. That's the, that's the struggle of sin, is that it lo- we lost the presence of God at the core of our being, where everything else circulated around. And now we, on this side of the fall, we now 2,000, you know, 2000 years after Jesus, it's our challenge for every one of us to find what is it in our life that sits in that pride of place where God belongs. How is it that we purge ourselves of these things that, that kind of control our life, that order our life, that's not God? Because the reality is, if it's a possession, it's not gonna. It's not gonna fulfill. The reality is, is that it's power or money or something like that, like worldly status. It's not gonna fulfill. We will guarantee. We will. We will exhaust that, and we're still gonna be empty. The reality is, is if we put our family or we put a spouse or we put our children on that throne where God belongs, we're gonna be let down. As hard as that sounds, as, as, as much as that doesn't make sense, like I love my kids, absolutely. But the person in our life 
that's supposed to be the one that everything else revolves around is our God. It's the way that we're created. It's who we are deep down. So in your life, what's the thing that sits on that throne of your heart? What's the person? What's the, what's the job? What's the, what's the thing in your life that orders everything else? The third thing that Jesus says, and when inviting us to be his disciple, when inviting us to be his follower, he says, you're called to take up your cross and follow me. Now Jesus, in the context of where he's at, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Like he's on his way to picking up a cross, walking that cross up a hill, dying on that cross. He knows where he's going. And he's saying, if you want to be my disciple and follow me, you need to do the same that I do. Back in the, uh, in the 90s, uh, when, I was a, uh, when I was a wee kid, um, I remember waking up, I remember like grow, as I was growing up, like half of the country, it seemed like overnight was a Chicago Bulls fan. And everybody, we were, like, it seemed like a, a ton of people either loved or hated the Bulls, but everybody loved the Chicago Bulls, the basketball team, right? Like, basketball all of, became, all of a sudden became this popular sport, and there's a reason why. His name was Michael Jordan, right? To this day, number 23 still means Michael Jordan, right? And what was going on? People were buying jerseys, people were buying shoes, people were doing all these things, and why? Because there was a certain tagline and a song of, I want to be like Mike, right? Everybody knew to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. So I'm going to buy the Air Jordans. I want to be like Mike, so I'll wear, my, I'll wear the jersey. I want to be like Mike, so I'm going to play basketball. I want to be like Mike. I want to look like Mike. Bald head, long shorts, right? Like, that's just, that's, that's what happened in basketball at that time. Everybody was excited and they wanted to be like Mike. Now the thing is, to truly be like Mike, it wasn't about the shirt or the shoes or the sport. It was about practice, and a lot of it. There were, very, there were a lot of people that said they wanted to be like Mike and bought a jersey, but there were very few people that said they want to be like Mike and shot as many free throws as he did. There was very few people that had the commitment to wake up early in the morning and go run. There was very few people that had the commitment to shoot a basketball until their arms were about to fall off so that they could be like Mike. There were very few people that were willing to embrace the suffering that it took to get the goal of being like Mike. In the same way with Jesus, what Jesus is saying in this, to this crowd, he's saying, a lot of you are going to want to be like me. You're going to want to have followers. You're going to want to be famous. You're going to want to have a people that are excited to see you walk in the door. But the reality is, is that to be like me, it's not about saying a word or making, having a miracle. To be like me, it's about picking up your cross. To be like me, it's about suffering for the sake of another. To be like me, it's about laying down your life for another person. 
See, this is the call that we all have on our hearts. This is the call that we all have as Christians. Is when God baptized, when we baptize, God says, I want you to be like my son. I want you to be my son, be my daughter. And they invite, we're invited into a life of picking up our cross and following the Lord. Now, that might seem like a big task. That might seem like a bit, like a mountain in front of us that's hard. And I'll be honest, what keeps me from doing that, what keeps me from walking that road, what keeps me a lot of times to myself, locked in my own house, locked in my own space, and not worrying about the rest of the world, is fear. Fear of falling short. Fear of failing in living out my life looking like Jesus. And I think a lot of us, that's a, it's a crippling space that we can find ourselves. That fear may be the thing that holds us back. In the same way, when God looks at us, he invites us, he says, I don't care, I don't, I don't want you to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid with me. See, when God calls out to us, when God says, pick up your cross and follow me, what the Lord is telling us is I'm going to strengthen you. I'm calling you to something greater. And it's okay if it looks like you fail by a worldly standard. If we think about it, Jesus Christ himself, Jesus looked like he failed. If we really think about it, he was a prophet that said a little bit too much. He was a revolutionary that seemed to be bringing about this kind of, this kind of new movement, all these things. It was the, but it was this call where like society was looking at him and saying, you, you are not supposed to be doing what you're doing. So what did they do? They killed him. What did they do? The standard by which Jesus was supposed to be, the standard by which we judge success in the world, right? The standard by which the world judges success, Jesus flipped. Because by a worldly standard, he lost. By a worldly standard, the cross looks like he lost. In so many ways, that, that fear is not of God. In so many ways, God is calling us to rise above that fear and to go out and to live his gospel boldly and loudly. Mother Teresa, whenever she was starting her ministry in Calcutta, um, one of her sisters came up to her and said, look, I, I, like, I understand that we have a lot to do and there's a, there's a lot of big things going on. Like, there's a lot of poor people. There's a lot of stuff going on in Calcutta. And like, you want to be faithful, but like, mother, there's so much. We can never serve them all. There's no way that we could serve all these people. And Mother Teresa looked at her and said, Sister, the Lord does not call us, the Lord does not call us to be successful. The Lord calls us first and foremost to be faithful. My brothers and sisters, today we come to celebrate this Mass. We hear the Word of God. We let God's Word speak to us that the Lord is not calling us to be successful by a worldly standard. 
first and foremost, he calls us to be faithful. As members of a crowd who are listening to the Lord, why are we here? As members of a crowd listening, do we come seeking a miracle? Do we come just because we're kind of intrigued by this guy who seems to be preaching? Or do we come because we know who he is? Because he's spoken to my heart. Because he's inviting me into a deeper relationship with him. Because in a little while, we're going to receive him in that deeper relationship. He's going to speak to us heart to heart, person to person. And call out to us. As disciples, how will we respond? Will we cast them away? That was a nice thought. It was a good Sunday morning, and that was it. Or will we let the Lord sit in his proper place in our heart and let everything else in our life revolve around him?